Welcome to the Traveling On Radio Show, your premier source for travel news and information, featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, the Traveling On Radio Show. Hey, hello everybody. Thank you for joining us today on the Traveling On Radio Show, the show that celebrates the responsible traveler. We're your host, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're broadcasting from our home studios in Silver Spring, Maryland, to be exact, right outside our nation's capital. Indeed, and on today's show, we explore the legacy of one of America's great frontier families, the Boones, as we trace the history of Daniel Boone and his son, Nathan, in helping to settle the American frontier in Missouri. First up, it's Dr. David Knowles and Grady Manis of Lindenwood University in Missouri as they introduce us to the historic Daniel Boone home and Boonesfield Village in Defiance, Missouri, near St. Louis, the place from which Daniel Boone would launch America's early exploration into the western frontier. Then we'll pick up the story of Daniel Boone's son, Nathan Boone, and explore his life on the frontier with the help of David Rogancies of the Nathan Boone Homestead in southwest Missouri, the Ozarks, in what is now Ashgrove, Missouri. Remember, we welcome your comments and questions at any time. You can email us at comments at travelnradio.com. That's travel, the letter N, radio.com. And of course, when you visit our website, please feel free to join our social networks, Facebook, Twitter. They're all listed there. And certainly sign up for our weekly travel deals and our monthly newsletter. Not too far from St. Louis is the historic Daniel Boone home in Boonesfield Village, where the story of America's most famous frontiersmen is being preserved and interpreted in a refreshing and provocative way, thanks to the scholars of Linwood University. Dr. David Knotts, America's Studies Dean and head of the Daniel Boone Home, is helping to shed some light on the Boone history in Missouri and how their interdependence on African Americans helped them succeed in settling the American frontier. A lot of people don't realize that Boone and his people were here before Lewis Clark even tried to go through it. Of course, Lewis Clark went all the way to the West Coast. But what we're trying to portray is that this was a, basically a multicultural thing. Because you had the Anglos coming, you know, from the east, crossing into what was Spanish, French territory. You had the Native Americans, by the way, the Osage Indians, the predominant tribe here. And they brought with them their slaves or their freed blacks, or freed slaves. But a lot of people don't realize that, uh, you know, if you think a couple of white folks built that house up there, you're crazy, you know. It was built by uh, slaves or again, freed slaves that might have had the skills. You know, these were skilled artisans did a lot of that work. Now that's not to say that Boone, Daniel, and Nathan weren't skilled themselves. They were. They had a lot of skills. But it was, uh, it it took this whole team, if you will, of people. And uh, we've discussed this before, the the relationship between slavery on the frontier was a whole lot different than what you had on the plantations. And on the frontier, in many cases, a slave was a companion. And uh, they carried rifles, they hunted, they fought with the family when it came to, you know, protect themselves from Indians. Um, that's not to say that there still wasn't a class distinction, but there definitely was a relationship. And uh, we, we're trying to get across the point. We're, uh, we're working with the Osage Nation right now, who are down in Oklahoma now. And uh, we incorpor- we're trying to incorporate them in our programming and education here, too. And when I went down just before Christmas to visit with them, um, uh, and they've been up there several times. I, I said, you know, if you had one story that you want to get out, what is it? And they said that we were a people and we're alive today. You know, 
This is the Osage. I just want everybody to know that they were a people and they're alive today. Uh, so anyway, we, we, in all of our programming, we try to cross-reference everything to all these different cultural groups as, as reasonably as we can. We also, uh, we do a lot, of, a lot of our stuff also we talk about, as I mentioned to you before, when you, when you ask the question, why did Boone and his fellow settlers pick this area? Water, food, shelter, space, you know, appropriate space, and then the arrangement of all that. Man has those same needs. So you look at, we get kids to investigate or look at it from that standpoint, we have a lot of water, an abundance of water here. Of course, we're in a big drought now. There were a lot more springs here at that time. Okay, you had the water for transportation by way of the Femiel Sage Creek down here, which was a river at the time, a navigable river. You go six miles this way down to the Missouri, take a left, go up to the Mississippi, take a right, and you're in St. Louis. Okay, so they had the transportation. And by way of food, what did they have? Wild game. Um, the, the fruits and nuts. I mean, this area was rich. You had black walnuts, you had wild pecans, uh, the mulberry tree right out there. We've got little sugar berries on it right now, about as good as anything. All this, all these wild food. But also, you had this fertile valley right here, because this is the river bottom here, and this soil is real fertile. Now, you go up on the hillsides, typical Ozark limestone, and the soil's about that deep, doesn't grow a whole lot of things. What about shelter? What was here for shelter? They had the wood resources to build. The, the housing and things that they needed, but they also needed fuel. The number one use of wood from the settlement period way back pre-Revolutionary War right up to the 1880s was for fire and cooking. Okay, I mean warmth and cooking, the number one use. The average family utilized uh, four, uh, 20 and as high as 40 cores of wood a year. And if you can imagine having to cut, haul, and stack 20 to 40 of those a year, and you know, that's, that's, uh, that's a lot of wood. What do you think the second biggest use of wood was on the frontier? People coming in claiming a homestead. Actually, it was fencing. It, to fence a, a standard, I mean, one of the common claims was a 40 acre tract, okay? To fence in, you had a perfectly square 40 acres. Fence that in took 8,000 rails. 8,000 rails. Okay? A, a, a good man could uh, split 50 to 60, 50 to 100, depending on their health and whatever. Wood was the number one source of energy clear up to about, you know, 18, clear after the Civil War, 1860 to 70 in that period of time. Helping to bring the Boone history to life is Grady Manis, chief interpreter for the Daniel Boone Home, who shares what life was like some 200 years ago when Daniel Boone came upon the Fimosage Valley, where the home he built still stands. Parts of England and Scotland and Ireland, uh, you, didn't, you didn't move with your, your, your personal family. Your, your in-laws, your cousins, your nephews, your neighbors all moved in mass. And the Spanish knew that if they moved the Boone family in here, that within a period of about 10 years, this Fem Osage Valley would be settled. And that's exactly what happened. So this village also, when we get up here and look at the view shed, this village, of course, was not here. Uh, all these buildings were slated to be destroyed for one reason or another, and they were collected up and moved in here and reassembled. So you had from that house up there a perfect open view of that 
river down there, which was the road, of course. That was your uh, course of travel. Uh, the Femo Sage at that time was a navigable river. Uh, there was boat traffic up and down it. Now uh, we've got holes out there that have been scoured out to maybe 11 feet deep, but for the most part it's about ankle deep, <clears throat> except in the spring floods. And then again, it's a, a river. But we'll head on up here. When people came out here before us, they were told the Daniel Boone story and only portions of it. Very little was talked about, about women's history, about Olive. And let's face it, Nathan was a hunter. He was a military man. He was a surveyor. All three of those occupations require you to be away from home. Who ran this place? His wife, Olive, did. And she ran it extremely well and made it a very successful farm. Her story has never been told in the past, so we really put an emphasis on the women's story out here. But even more tragically, or every bit as tragically, and I hate to admit this, but before the university took this over, tour guides were told that there were no slaves anywhere at all in the Femme Osage Valley. And that was the official line. They, that's what they were to tell visitors. That. Um, the term was used indentured servants. And although there were indentured servants in the old Spanish days, um, and we have seen on some uh, tax records the indication that there were indentured servants up until about 1810 in this area, the Boones were slave owners. And we are going to tell that story. We found a picture in a, in a Pittsburgh newspaper from 1901 with an article, Daniel Boone's Missouri Home. And a gentleman was standing right about where that tree is, taking a picture up this direction. And this concrete mess here is the, a casting of, the, of a judgment tree. Daniel was a syndic, which is kind of like a circuit court judge. And he felt like you couldn't think clearer unless you were outside in the fresh air. So anytime he heard a court case, he always, whether we stay in here or down at Washington with his daughter or down by Matson with his other son, he would find a huge gigantic shade tree and he would go outside and pass judgment under the tree. So there were a whole series of judgment trees. This is a concrete casting of one. Um, so he sat there and, and passed judgment. but. They were taking a picture of the judgment tree, and in the background, right on this location, is if you took and, and studied slave quarters in the Mid-South and Lower South, this is your textbook example of the construction of a slave quarters. So we just located it. Uh, the preliminary um, findings were definitely, it was a habitation. Uh, some domestics found here. There's all kinds of domestics that wash out from underneath the spring here. So this was where people lived. And um, ten men. The three women that uh, Nathan owned, we are reasonably sure that they slept in the kitchen of the big house. That was very, very common. Uh, the women were responsible for cooking and cleaning and keeping the fires going, so they slept in the house. The men slept in separate quarters, at least typically. So. The Boones did not leave a lot of records of those kind of what they considered common everyday things. So we're having to piece that together. 
but we will um, continue to dig here, get this all uncovered, and then publish our findings on, on the results of the dig. None of this has ever really been dug. We've done some test digs, and we know that the entire Fenlo Sage Valley is full of uh, prehistoric remains. Um, this has always been a good place to live and hunt. And so we have uh, flakes, and there's a place that was very evidently a, a hunting camp on our property right down here in this bottom next to the river. Um, it has archaic artifacts, so we're talking about very, very early human. The home in Exeter, England, where the Boone family originated, Georgian architecture. Um, we're not sure why this massive a building. You have Daniel Boone's youngest son. He is a, um, he gets here, he's 18 years of age. Um, they live in a fairly comfortable log cabin, but as they start to build their dream home, we kind of assume that since Daniel was up in years and he was not really actively farming, he was mostly just kind of um, doing some land speculating and uh, traveling around spending time with each of his children that lived in the area, that Nathan may have wanted to build his father something that kind of reminded him of his home. The home in Exeter, England looks similar to this. The home where Daniel grew up in Pennsylvania looks very much like this. Um, it was also if a young man could establish himself through land and through prestige such as a fancy home, then it just promoted him socially. Um, so we kind of think if you add all those reasons up, that's why he did this rather than staying in a, in a cabin. Um, when they left here, they moved to a simple double-pin dog trot on the frontier. First of all, Nathan was in the military by that time, and if you draw a triangle between the three stations that he went through, Jefferson Barracks, um, Fort Leavenworth, or excuse me, Fort Atkinson, and uh, Fort Gibson, it makes a triangle, and Ash Grove is right kind of at the base of that triangle. So anytime he had to travel between his three stations, uh, he was able to take a little side trip and spend time with his family. If he had stayed here, he never would have seen his family. The three boys were older. They were out on their own pretty much. How many of y'all have uh, parents who have downsized? All the kids grow up, get out of the house. They have grandkids over occasionally, but they move into a smaller home. Nathan and Olive didn't need all this room when the, by the time they got to Ash Grove. So a lot of different reasons went into that downsizing, we believe. Um, very substantial. It looks like a fort almost with the uh, sallies. These are called sallies or shooting forts. Uh, they've been blocked up. On the inside you would have had a big oak block with a ring on it so you could pull those out quickly. Uh, this was Spanish territory as I said when they first moved here. There was always a constant threat of attack by the uh, Indians in the area but also uh, this was disputed area. The British wanted it, the French wanted it back, the Spanish wanted to hold on to it. You never knew who might show up at your front door. The walls are blue limestone, two and a half feet thick. Um, the shutters we're going to have to replace. Um, they would never have had louvered shutters. If you're afraid of attack, you put up big plank shutters. 
How many of y'all seen in the movies? I and mean, this looks really cool. You're under attack, so you take the butt of your gun and you bust out all the glass. How stupid is that? Glass is expensive. What you do is you shut those big oak slat shutters that have a slot in them. You raise the window and you shoot through the slot. After you attack, you open the shutter and you shut the window. You don't have to break out all the glass. But nevertheless, this was a fort. Daniel was uh, commissioned as a colonel of, of uh, territorial militia, although he never took the field. Nathan was a captain of Missouri Rangers. Um, so as an officer of Rangers, anytime the militia mustered up, they would have met here. And if there had been a threat of attack, all of his neighbors would have come here to this house. So this also was very much like a fort. When we come back, we'll continue our exploration of the Boons and frontier life in Missouri with Grady Manis, the chief interpreter for the Daniel Boone Homes. We're Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and this is a Traveling On Radio Show. Where can you book all of your travel needs at the best price? Purchase the latest travel gear and get the most current and comprehensive travel news and information? Travelinon.com. That's travelin-on.com. Whether you're a seasoned traveler, novice, or whether you're planning a long trip or looking for a weekend getaway, travelinon.com has the tools to complete your travel plans. Go to travelinon.com. That's travelin-on.com. The traveler's best resource. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Carter Fleming, Community Center Volunteer. The giving spirit is as passionate in the boomers today as it was in our 20s, and we as a generation can still impact our country. Lead, inspire, change the world again. Join thousands and find which volunteer opportunity is best for you. Call 1-800-424-8867 today or visit www.getinvolved.gov. This message is brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service in this station. This is the Travelin' On Radio Show, bringing you a world of travel news and information. Once again, let's join your hosts, Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. Let's rejoin Grady Manis as we continue our tour of the historic Daniel Boone home. All right, let's step inside. Georgian architecture always includes a central hall with a staircase opposing the front door. And then on the rooms, everything either mirrored one another or they were altered and you might have two rooms on one side and one room on the other. Uh, that Once you got to the interior, you had all kinds of leeway. But you had the central hallway and the stairway. Now the room over here on our on the uh, south side, you all step in here. This is the, uh, this is the formal parlor. Um, typically this was a men's room. Um, Men would meet in here and take care of business. Uh, they would spend their evenings in here after dinner discussing things. If uh, uh, other militia officers showed up and needed to talk over military plans, that was all done in this room. Um, however, we do know that in the evenings after the children's all, children all went to bed, the ladies would join the men over here before they all retired. Um, however, we know that Daniel was very much a family man. He not only loved his children and grandchildren, but he actually doted on his grandchildren. He spent as much time with them as he possibly could. Um, 
he was also a great storyteller. So I have no problem picturing Daniel sitting in a chair like one of these by the fireplace with one or two grandbabies on his lap and the rest of them spread out here on the floor and him telling them stories about his adventures. Um, we do know that his favorite book and the one he read repeatedly cover to cover was the, the Bible. He read the scriptures constantly. His second favorite book was a novel, Gulliver's Travels. And yeah, it doesn't, it's uh, kind of hard sometimes to see where those two fit together. But if you think about the lessons in Gulliver's Travels and what Jonathan Swift's talking about, it does make sense. We do know that he would, uh, he would uh, tell stories to his grandchildren about his adventures fighting long-eared galoots and other critters from Gulliver's Travels. So basically he incorporated his adventures with, with uh, Gulliver's and made up all kinds of new and interesting stories for the kids. Any formal entertaining went on in this room? One thing I do want to point out is the expert craftsmanship in this building. Um, the stonework here, when I was at the Daniel Boone, or the Nathan Boone home in Ash Grove, um, we came up here and studied the fireplaces and fire, found that these fireplaces match exactly the fireplaces in Ash Grove. Men pass that kind of thing along to their sons, so it makes sense that these match. It's also possible that some of the slaves that worked on this home may have still been alive and young enough to work on the home in Ash Grove. That's a very important thing to, to remember is that Daniel, it was at one time said that Daniel carved every single one of the mantles in this house himself personally. We're pretty sure that did not happen. He was an expert tool maker. He probably worked, he kept tools going that were used and he supervised it. But all this fancy reading, uh, reading is this real small groove lines and um, the larger grooves there are called fluting. These elements are shown throughout the entire house. This was probably done by slave labor. The quality of the work here, and, uh, and I hate to put it in these terms, but the prices that the Boones paid for their slaves and the prices the Boones received when they sold slaves indicate that these weren't just field hands, that the slaves that they owned were tradesmen. They, owned, they, they knew trades and crafts that had, had very highly developed skills. You also um, pooled labor, kind of like modern construction crews. If you've ever been associated with building a house, you have the uh, concrete crew come in, and when they leave and move on to their next job, you have the rough, uh, rough-in carpenters come in, they leave, you have the sheetrock. Same thing happened here. They pooled labor, and they built about five houses in this valley, all pretty much at the same time. The stonework here matches the Van Bibber home right down the road. Uh, James Van Bibber was Nathan's brother-in-law. As I say, the stonework here matches pretty closely the stonework down there, so the same craftsmen were involved. Stonework here matches the uh, uh, Callaway house right across the road here. So they shared labor. Now, any of you gentlemen work with furn uh, with uh, furniture or wood doing woodwork? Or I know some of you ladies, maybe when you want a china cabinet you, or a bed front stead, you might want a walnut, cabinet quality walnut. This whole building is walnut and oak. 
these doors, mantelpieces, the window frames, walnut. The floor is a mixture of walnut and oak. And that wasn't because the Boones were wealthy. Walnut was like a weed. There was walnut everywhere. It is an exceptionally good construction material. So that's what they built this house out. Not because they could afford to buy walnut, but because walnut was right out here and that's what they cut down and used. Nowadays, yeah, <laughs> my wife and I, when we built our home, we salvaged, uh, we do a lot of salvage work, and we salvaged a walnut door for our bedroom. Um, and uh, even at that, it was a lot. So, the paintings. This is a copy of um, a portrait of Daniel Boone. The only portrait done of Daniel during his lifetime was done by Charles Hardy. And it was painted in Jemima Boone's home over by Washington, Missouri. Daniel never would have had a picture of himself in the house. So that's got to come out of here. The Curleys owned the property at one time. Those pictures got to come out of here. There are a lot of things that I'm having to do to restore the interior of the buildings to make sure they're the way they were when, when Nathan lived here. Um, but uh, again, that's a copy of the Harding portrait, which is probably the most, everything, every picture you see of Daniel Boone was taken off of that or based on that portrait. Um, there were two fires in this building. Um, we know uh, that there was some damage to the floor above us. If you look up here, uh, there are definite lines, color, uh, coloration called ghostings on these beams. There are also nail patterns. This ceiling was like the other ceilings. It was lath and plastered. If you were going to leave open beams in a house like this, they would have been smoothed and they would have had beaded edges along the sides of them. So it would have been finished. This is not finished. I hate the term rustic. Rustic is a modern, it, it, it's a period term, but nowadays people use it for sloppy work. Well, that's an ugly table. Well, I wanted it to look rustic. Well, that basically means you did a bad job making the table. So bright colors were very, very uh, popular for paint. Uh, one of the things is, you know, most of our textbooks are printed in black and white. So we grow up with this idea that history is black and white. There was no color involved. Uh, wrong. Bright colors were very, very popular and used throughout the house. Now across the hallway, these two rooms are rather small, but you can kind of step in and take a look. As you step in there on the left-hand side is the informal parlor. That's where you spend time with your family if you were indoors. We live outdoors during this time period. We don't, we don't spend much time inside except to, to sleep. Um, so that was kind of an informal parlor. The bedroom on the right-hand side as you go in there originally was going to be Nathan and Olive's, but when Daniel moved in with them, Nathan and Olive moved upstairs, and we'll see their bedroom in a minute. That is the bedroom where Daniel Boone passed away. So you can, that's not the bed he died in, but that is the room he was in when he passed away. So if y'all want to step across there and take a look. The bedroom on my right-hand side here was Nathan and Alice. And uh, they always ask me, people always ask me about wallpaper. Wallpaper dates way back before this time period, and we know that Olive loved wallpaper. Shortly after they got to Ash Grove, uh, Nathan got the interior of their cabin down there uh, plastered, whitewashed, 
And then Olive ordered wallpaper for her cabin out there on the frontier. Um, this was going to be the boys' room originally, and the girls' room was going to be the one on my left. That became the children's room when Nathan and Olive moved upstairs here. Um, until you were about uh, five years old, six years old, the boys stayed with the girls. And the girls were expecting the older girls were supposed to take care of the younger kids, so you would stay in there. Um, so that was the children's room. We think as the boys got older, they probably moved outside one of the outbuildings. Um, Young men started actually working, helping on the farm when they were about 12, 13 years of age. And they worked long, hard hours, and you didn't want them disturbing the family when they came in for work. One of the features of this house that I like to point out to everybody that we can't actually go up and see. Uh, and we'll go out on the porch here uh, when we get through. Uh, and then down the stairs, but there actually is one full story above us here, a floor above us. Um, this was not called a mansion during the time period. This is called an estate house. The thing about any large estate house is you always had a top floor that was used for one single purpose. That was for parties. So this is a dance floor up above us. The only thing that we know of that the Boone's ever stored up there was Daniel built his own coffin. He wanted to make sure of the fit, he used to tell his family, and the coffin was stored up on the third floor. But uh, apparently there weren't a whole lot of parties while the coffin was up there. But the way that worked was at the top of these stairs there's a large landing and the musicians would sit in the middle and you would have two sets of dances going on in the two rooms. And usually the younger folks were in one room and the older folks in the other room. So uh, strictly for, for dancing. We do know that two of Daniel's or two of Nathan's sons were exceptionally good fiddlers, and all of his daughters were um, comely and um, loved to dance. So there were parties going on here a lot. Uh, the Lincolns married in. They were um, they married into a. Um, branch of the Boone family. It, they weren't directly related in, in a straight line. However, there were a lot of families who were tied in the Boones that just uh, couldn't seem to get untied. You had the Hayes, the Bryans, the, the Howells, the, the Van Bibbers. Um, uh, Randolph was one of them, Boggs. All these cousins that would marry into the family and so forth and so on. And a lot of those families came out of the Carolinas into Kentucky with, with Daniel and then followed Daniel to Missouri from Kentucky, North Carolina and Valley. They moved out of Pennsylvania down into North Carolina and stayed there for a while and crossed the Cumberland Gap into Kentucky. So there are boon sites um, in Exeter, England, of course, where the family first came from, and then there, everything from Pennsylvania down into North Carolina across Kentucky and into Missouri. We'll go ahead and step out. I want you all to see the view out here of the valley. Wow. Um, the folks who slept out here, they were also gathered out here in the evenings uh, in the fresh air. Um, imagine probably no trees here. The trees were cut down for construction and also to open the view and no village. Down there at the base of that far hill is the Femo Safe. So you would have had a wide, clear, open view. You may have had a small garden down there on the green, but um, not too much. We do know that Colonel Curley closed this in with glass. 
and he covered the stonework with concrete. But in a couple areas where the stone's still exposed, we do know it was covered with whitewash. So you still have the same visual effect of landing down there at the river and coming up a long road across that green and seeing this big, huge white edifice up here on top of this hill. So it was very, very impressive in, in the day. So you had a, a very impressive view. And as I say, as we try to restore the landscape, some of that's going to be restored. We're going to clear up the view here, get rid of the rock walls eventually, and uh, try to get the native grasses and plants back in again. It's easy to mistake it for the kitchen because that big fireplace. <clears throat> but actually, this is the dining room. And um, this is for the adults. The adults ate over here. Um, the big fireplace there was primarily for heat and additionally to keep food warm while you were serving your guests. Uh, no cooking was ever done there. However, that is such a good working fireplace that we had two volunteers. We had a special dinner for folks, uh, some dignitaries from the university. We fed 80 people a full traditional Osage dinner how that kitchen how that you know, we had turkey we had squash and beans great dumplings uh, fry bread and it seems like two or three other things all cooked out of that mm. hearth so it's a great working hearth but it wasn't used at the time for cooking when you were old enough to completely mind your manners and to carry on intelligent conversation you were invited to come over and eat with the adults. You, get, you remember that um, a man was ready to marry. I mean, he was making, he was starting to make something of himself at about 16 years of age, so that by the time he reached 18, he was established well enough to support a wife. So you were pretty adult by the time you were about 14, 13, 14 mm -hmm. years of age. Um, women started marrying uh, as early as 13. Um, the average age for women on the frontier was 16 years of age at the time of marriage. If you're doing all your cooking and heating with open flame, and you're wearing lots of cloth, it's real easy to catch your dresses. The average for, if I remember correctly, in 1812, the average uh, life expectancy for men was something like about 50 years of age, and for women it was, um, I believe, 48. There was about a two-year difference, and I think the women was a little bit less than the men. Tea was shipped in two different ways. Um, loose leaf tea was the very expensive tea, and it was the heart of the leaf. Mm -hmm. Everything else, including the stem, was ground up into a wet mulch, put into a press, and then pressed into tiles. Mm -hmm. So that, and the tile was divided into bricks. The Chinese actually use this as currency. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a very, very dark tea, like uh, China, it's called a China black. It's like, um, well, it's even heavier than English breakfast tea. I love it. But you just take and start boiling your water, and you take the edge of a knife or a grater and scrape the dust into the boiling water, and you let it. But, um, yeah, we still get it imported from China. Now, when we had the big party for the English there in Boston, two kinds of tea. The loose leaf tea and tile, these come a hundred tiles to a crate. They're still shipped that way. And the, the, these are wrapped in wax paper, then the crate is lined with wax paper, and then it's covered with wax paper to keep the moisture away. Well, you throw loose leaf tea in the harbor, 
and it all floats on top. You throw a 100-pound crate of tea in the harbor, and it goes to the bottom, straight to the bottom. Now, you know those fish had to be jumping and flying out of that water after a while with all that caffeine. <laughs> but that's, that's tea. Can Sure, you pass it around. It's, you can sniff it. it uh, you can still smell the that heavy mm, tea. Yeah, it's good. good stuff. Real good stuff. Wow. Now, you often kept this locked up in a special little cassette. In fact, um, that's a sugar box right over there, that little round silver box or tin box. This is, this is just mm. raw sugar. If you could afford white sugar, which was available, it was about $5 a pound. Uh, a soldier in the U.S. Army made $5 a month. So white sugar was unbelievably expensive. The raw sugar was a little less than that, but um, and it tastes kind of like molasses. So this stuff around me doesn't last real long. You take the sugar nips here and you just uh, nip off a big chunk and put it in your mouth and let it slowly dissolve. It's... Uh, but uh, I can probably, if anybody wants it, we don't have any gifts in the gift shop. I did find a, a few bricks in the uh, in our uh, storage area the other day. So that over there is the auxiliary fireplace and a bake oven. The main cooking fireplace is behind this wall. Uh, during the new mattered earthquake, we suffered some damage to the foundation, and eventually this fireplace started. To, the stonework started to sag. And the man who owned the property at the time didn't know what to do, so he filled the fireplace in. You ladies did everything by touch. When it gets, when it's so hot that you can't put your hand inside any longer, it's right at 350 degrees. So when you, you would put your hand up there, and when it, you could tell, okay, it's 350 degrees, time to put the bread in. And after bread came out, you put your hand up there, you get your hand in. Oh, it's 250, time to put the pies in. Yeah, you, ba you put a, built a fire in there, and just like they do in a, a pizza, um, um, you built a fire in there, and then you kept a fire going in the up in the fireplace there, and one here. So that box, once you got it hot, stayed hot for a long time. Down in one of the other kitchens, we actually have a, a similar fire uh, oven where um, one of our volunteers uh, for a weekend fed 47 people five full meals out of there, including fresh baked bread and pie. Yeah, most people would. If you had an oven, it would have been a, a beehive oven outside. But it was really And in truth, you can, anything you can bake in a modern oven, you can bake in a Dutch oven. So a lot of people baked in. in yeah, we we were, on the frontier. We were very big into putting it all in one pot. Now you mentioned Ben Franklin. We'll, we got to go out this door over here. So uh, this is a tin kitchen, or what we call a reflector oven. Uh, developed by Ben Franklin because his mother was spending too much time cooking at the fireplace. You put a, a turkey or a duck or a chicken on there or a, a venison roast and cook it to the spit. You put this to the fire so that the heat reflects from behind and you have a pot to it. So every 10, 15 minutes. You turn the meat just a little bit. Boy, he was clever, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes. Ben Franklin's and I've had about every kind of meat imaginable. Put the kids like ten kids. Amazing. No, stay away from that. Amazing.
We're going to learn about Nathan Boone and his westward push as we visit the home he built in Ashgrove, Missouri with David Rogensees of Missouri's Department of Natural Resources. We're Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and this is a Traveling On Radio Show. Looking for the latest travel book, the hottest item in travel gear and clothing? Or are you researching a destination or looking into the most current travel regulations or warnings? If so, visit TravelinOn.com, your one-stop shop for travel resources. At TravelinOn.com, that's TravelN-On.com, you can get the latest travel news and information and shop for all of your travel needs. TravelinOn.com is your premier source for all things travel. That's TravelN-On.com. Now, more of the Traveling On Radio Show. In 1837, Daniel Boone's youngest son, Nathan Boone, and his wife, Olive, made their way from the family home in what is now Defiance, Missouri, to the cabin in what is now Ashgrove, Missouri. With the help of David Rogensees, we pick up the Boone story in Ashgrove, where Nathan and Olive are buried in the family cemetery, as are their former Boone slaves. Nathan Boone moved here to Missouri in 1799 when it was Louisiana. Uh, went and started going hunting. Uh, Nathan Boone went out hunting from Defiance, and that was family business when they initially got there. One of the classic stories, and I'm gonna, I want you to get a feel for this house and what the stories that were told here. One of the classic stories is that Nathan, if you want a reason the Spanish invited the Boones, you need to understand the dominant military power here on the uh, Great Plain, between the Mississippi River and really the Rocky Mountains were the Osage Indians. The Osage Indians, on average at the time, stood about, their warriors stood six feet six. All right, their great chief, a man named Pahuska, stood seven foot tall. Mighty man. Okay. I, the image I have of people coming out on the plains and carrying the Osage goes back to the, if you've read the Bible, you know when they sent the 12 spies into the Holy Land right after the Exodus, and they came back and said, there's giants there, we don't want to go there. I can see the early pioneers going out on the Great Plains and saying, there's giants there, we don't want to go into the Great Plains. These people are six feet six, seven feet tall. Well, Nathan went out there hunting anyway. The Spanish basically had to give really good trade uh, relate, or have really good trade relations with the Osage to keep them from taking trade goods. So they gave them presents. And uh, actually, Pierre, Pierre Laplete of Laplete's Landing uh, had an Osage wife in addition to uh, Madame Choteau, his uh, mistress that was the mother of the Choteau family. And you get into a whole sort of history about that. It, it's an interesting frontier early settlement history about the Choteaus. If you ever have a chance to read about it, do. But uh, Pierre Laplede was the patriarch of the Choteau family. Uh, Monsieur Choteau abandoned Madame Choteau here. She was a good Catholic and needed a divorce. He went back to France and she took up Pierre Laplede, the founder of St. Louis. Well, Pierre Laplede and his August Choteau and Pierre Choteau had wives among the Osage in addition to their French wives in St. Louis. And they had outstanding trade relations with the Osage. Now, two points. The Spanish wanted settlers to come here so that they could balance the military power with the Osage. Meaning, they invited the Shawnees to come west in the 1790s, and they settled west of St. Louis. And you have a barrier between St. Louis and the Osage tribe. 
And the Delaware Indians asked to come west, and they settled south of St. Louis. Once again, you have a barrier. About 800 Shawnees, 400 Delawares. Then in 1799, they have a little hole in their defense north in St. Charles, and Daniel Boone comes west with his extended family. Because they came, and they had probably 500 people once they got set up in St. Charles, in that settlement. And so they had the Boones, who were famous Indian fighters, on the frontier in St. Charles to defend that frontier. And so they had a cordon of defense around St. Louis, something they never had. And so they could have a little more stable relations with the Osage. Well, the Boones went out hunting, and in trade, the Osage and all Native Americans, people think, oh, well, they traded Manhattan, the, the Indians got a bad deal. No, they didn't. The Indians that traded Manhattan Island to the Dutch were from Brooklyn. And they wanted the manufactured goods because they had no other source for them. So why not trade their neighbor's land for the manufactured goods? Okay. Native Americans, one source of wealth to trade for manufactured goods, cloth, knives, guns, buttons, beads, pots. You can imagine going from a birch bark bowl that you boil the water by dumping hot rocks into it to a copper or iron kettle. That's better than going from a gas stove to a microwave. I mean, that's a leap. And the Native Americans wanted it. And how did they pay for it? Through furs. They harvested game and they traded the furs for manufactured goods. And the Osage pushed back as many of their competitors as they could so they could have a larger and larger hunting territory. And then they had outstanding trade relations through Pierre Laclede and the Chateaus. Yeah. Well, the Boones came west, and the Boones started coming hunting in the Osage territory. And uh, Nathan came out. Now, the Osage didn't want to pick a fight, especially after 1804 when the United States acquired ownership of Louisiana, the Louisiana Purchase. They didn't want to pick a fight with the U.S. government, but they didn't want to have these competitors out here. So what the Osage did, they didn't want to pick a war, but they would rob, they would take away, basically seize, almost like a customs service, the furs and, and equipment that was for procuring furs that their competitors were using. So you're in our hunting grounds, we're taking your furs, go away, we won't kill you. Well, Nathan was hunting by 1804, and uh, he and his brother-in-law, Matthias, were hunting, and they were had their rifles, and they'd taken off their blanket coats and tied them to their horses, and they went out stalking deer, and they came back, and their horses and all their possessions were cleaned out. They were gone. So it's just the two of them out on the Grand River Valley in west central Missouri. And it's early winter, and they've got to walk back. Now, as the story goes, they bump in a tribe of Indians that's not going to kill because then there'll be word will leak out. But then they ran, bumped into three lone Osage, and they thought, oh, we've got a problem because if anything happens to us now, who's going to tell? And there's three of them, two of us, we'll probably get two of them, but Still, it's a bad bite to pick. So they uh, worked out a deal where they gave each of the three Osage a gift. They gave them some powder. They had lots of powder with them. They were hunting. Some shot, lead, a couple of flints, and these little packets. They had some wax paper in their ditty bag. And they made these bundles of presents for the three of them. And they picked up their presents, and the two sides backed away from each other. And when they got to the top of a crest, 
Matthias and Nathan took off running. And they got away. And that night, they killed a turkey. But they messed up. Each of them thought the other had held back more lead for bullets. So, counting the shot from the turkey, they had five bullets left to make it all the way back from west central Missouri, which was the wilderness. I mean, this is Lewis and Clark going west. This was wilderness, wilderness. Lewis and Clark passed them that year. So they had to walk back, and then a snowstorm hit. And it got so cold, the rifles wouldn't shoot straight. So they had nothing to eat. And all they could do was just keep walking back and making a fire in a bed at night and pick whatever dried berries they could find and keep walking back. And it was terrible. And Nathan said, he's telling this story. Actually, Nathan told this story right here in this cabin in October of 1851 to, to this man right here, Lyman Draper. Lyman Copeland Draper. Which you folks that are recording, Lyman Draper is the man responsible for really the first uh, oral history project in the United States. I think he did something like 481 interviews of people who helped settle the American frontier. Can you imagine that? Rolls and rolls of microfilm, or even copy of Missouri State today, the Draper Collection. You can just read first-hand interviews with these people. The ultimate researcher right there, and recorded stories that are still being passed down today. Well, he's, Nathan's telling this story to Draper in 1851. He said, Mr. Draper... As we got to walking, he said it was so cold, and when we wear holes in our moccasins, we had we had no other leather, so we cut holes from our leggings and we patch our moccasins, and so we were walking bare legged through the snow. And uh, and Matthias was getting sick, and he was coughing, and I th- and I th- thought he was coming down with pneumonia, and. Uh, we didn't know if we were going to make it or not. And then finally, said Mr. Draper, we came upon this stump where some Indians had been taking target practice. And we got to the stump and we pulled out our knives and we dug the spent lead out of the stump. And we had our ladles and we built a fire and we, mo- we molded some new bullets. And we loaded our rifles and then we took off. And then the next day we came upon this, this abandoned, probably a Delaware cabin. The Indians from the east lived in cabins like like the frontiersmen, you couldn't really tell the difference between uh, Native Americans on the frontier and Americans on the frontier. They're, they dressed alike, they lived alike, there was little difference, at least during that period before the Civil War. And he said, we went to this cabin and the door had fallen off, its leather hinges so they'd given away, it was abandoned. But we walked right in, thought we could look and see if we could find something to use, find some shelter. And right in front of the fireplace, laying on the floor in front of the fireplace, was a panther. And it jumped up and snarled, and I raised my rifle up, and I shot it, and I shot it dead, right there in front of the fireplace. We quickly whipped out our knives, and we skinned out that panther, and we had ourselves some panther steak. And I'm telling you, sir, it it tasted so sweet and kind of (laughs) catty. And then we took the hide, and we laid it out, and we each made ourselves, fashioned ourselves best out of the hide, and we turned the fur to the inside, and it added so very much to our comfort. The next day, we made a bundle of the meat, and we started walking again. And then we came upon a party of our kinsmen who were going out on a long hunt, and they had extra horses and blankets, so we made ourselves blanket coats, and we took horses, and we rode back to the settlements. And he said, you know, Mr. Draper, after this whole ordeal, we got back home, we stepped off our horses and walked to the door, we opened it up, and the family was sitting down to Christmas Eve dinner. And Olive could not contain herself one more second. She said, Mr. Draper, 
That was Christmas Eve of 1804. We'd been married five years by that time. And that was the first Christmas we spent together. And I owe it all to the Indians. <laughs> so, Olive was sitting in here while Nathan was telling his great white man story. And she had to get her two cents worth in <laughs> and let, let Nathan know and Mr. Draper know and us know that she was here too. And that she mattered. Nathan, after that time, when he was being interviewed here, he was uh, Colonel Nathan Boone. He was Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Boone in the 2nd U.S. Dragoon Regiment. Now, Nathan Boone, 1808, was a scout and guide for William Clark, leading him to uh, Fort Osage on the Missouri River, Jackson County, to negotiate a treaty between the Osage Indians and the United States government, kind of clarify the uh, trade relations, make sure that the Osage didn't interfere with the settlement of the, of the uh, Louisiana frontier of that time. When the Osage refused to come up to the Kansas City area, what would become Kansas City, uh, William Clark didn't go out to bring him in. He sent Captain Nathan Boone, he was a Missouri militia captain, sent him down with an interpreter to convince the Osage to come up. And Nathan went down there and met with seven-foot-tall Chief Pahuska, well, five-foot-eight Nathan Boone, and he brought the Osage tribe up to the treaty negotiations, and that's where the Treaty of 1808 that ceded the bulk of what became the state of Missouri from the Osage tribe to the United States government was written in 1808. Nathan, during that time, was uh, making salt at the Boonslick Salt Works, and we hear the central region of Missouri called the Boonslick. That's named for Nathan Boone and Daniel Morgan Boone. Um, so Nathan helped with that. He's boiling salt at the Boonslick. He had problems with the Sock and Fox Indians raiding their cattle herds, which is what they used to feed their men, because they pretty much turned the area around the Boonslick into almost like a moonscape, because they cut down every tree they could for fuel to boil down the salt water to make the salt that they shipped down to market in St. Louis. And they also hunted out the game, so they had to have cattle to feed their men. <coughs> but that's the Boonslick. Um, Nathan in 1811, though, they gave up the Boonslick, Nathan and Daniel Morgan, and they sold out. And Nathan ended up working for William Clark, Indian agent, and he spied on the Sauk and Fox Indians who were allied with the Shawnees back east, eastern Shawnees, and Tecumseh, the great Shawnee leader. And this would lead to the War of 1812. Well, Nathan in 1811 and 1812 was serving as a spy on the Sauk and Fox to warn if they were going to launch a raid against the Missouri settlements. And by 1812, Missouri is Missouri because Louisiana became a state and took the name Louisiana. So Missouri became Missouri in 1812. In 1812, the U.S. Congress created three companies of rangers for frontier defense, a company in Indiana, a company in Illinois, and a company in Missouri. The captain of the company of Missouri Rangers was, was the son of Daniel Boone, Nathan Boone. Nathan led that company in the defense of the Missouri frontier against raids by the Sock and Fox. Roughly, he patrolled from the Quiver River, where it flows into the Mississippi River, across to the Boone Slip. And they were very effective in preventing raids into the settled interior of Missouri. Okay. And my evidence for that is, if you think about the history of the American West, how many massive Indian atrocities have we heard of committed against uh, uh, American settlers on the Missouri frontier? Other than Hannah's Fort, probably. Yeah. yeah. Small scale. 
small scale. And that's because of the effectiveness of Nathan Boone and his Missouri Rangers. And then that force was expanded. James Callaway, Jemima's son, became a uh, captain of Rangers. Nathan was promoted to major. Daniel Morgan stepped in, and he was also promoted to major. So they kept active in defending the Missouri frontier. All right, the War of 1812 ended. Nathan Boone built his wonderful rock house uh, outside of Defiance after the war. He farmed, he surveyed as a contractor, he surveyed all over the state, a lot of the territory that was being settled. And he did that in 1820. Nathan helped write the Missouri Constitution. He was a delegate to write the Missouri Constitution, the Constitution that necessitated the Missouri Compromise. The, comp- the Constitution that made Missouri come into the Union as a slave state, Maine had to come in as a free state to balance it. Nathan was one of the delegates that voted for that Constitution okay, and, and put it in place. So he assumed that this would be a, Missouri would be a slave state. He didn't assume, he helped make it that. Okay. So that was part of Nathan's legacy. Um, but no delegate, no delegate at that time would have been elected had they not supported making Missouri a slave state. It was just... It wasn't an issue. This was pre... Uh, oh gosh, I'm forgetting my term. This is pre-William Lloyd Garrison. This is... Uh, Abolition. Yeah, abolition. Okay. Uh, but this is before that period. And so it wasn't necessarily considered. And so Missouri became a slave state. Uh, Nathan went on doing his survey work in farming. And then in 1832, you understand that 1815... Cavalry troops, mounted soldiers, were expensive. And so after the War of 1812, Congress did not fund mounted troops for the U.S. Army. There were no dragoon or cavalry troops. 1830, Congress passed the Indian Removal Act, the act that made uh, necessary the Trail of Tears and so forth. Western tribes on the Great Plains did not want Native did not want Eastern Native Americans coming into their territory. And they were horse soldiers. They were warriors uh, that were as great as horse soldiers or horse warriors as the Mongols or so forth. And to counter them, the United States government had to have a mounted force in the U.S. Army. And what they found from 1815 to 1832, they didn't have experienced officers. In 1832, uh, Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri, U.S. Senator, pushed through a bill to create the, the, uh, uh, the Ranger Battalion, the U.S. Mounted Ranger Battalion. And Henry Dodge of St. Genevieve was made the colonel, and they had six captains selected. One of those six captains was Captain Nathan Booth. And what they did was they went back and found veterans in the War of 1812 who had commanded mounted troops if they could find them, or at least had military experience, and made them officers in the Mounted Ranger Unit. One year later, the first U.S. Dragoon Regiment was created, 1833. That is the predecessor of what is today the first U.S. Cavalry Regiment. And the first U.S. Dragoon Regiment operated from 1833 to 1861. In effect, the Dragoons were mounted soldiers, but they also fought on foot, and they also had their own artillery. So they had all three branches of the military cover. These were elite troops for the frontier. And Nathan was asked... And he said in, in an interview in this cabin that he was asked to accept the commission in the Dragoons by Andrew Jackson. Probably in the letter, but he accepted the commission.
we will continue our exploration of Missouri in upcoming episodes of the Traveling On Radio Show, so stay tuned. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us today on the Traveling On Radio Show. We look forward to connecting with you during the week on Facebook and Twitter and through our newsletters, and certainly look forward to your comments and questions at comments at travelnradio.com. And of course, you can connect with us on our networks at travelnradio.com. That's travel, the letter N, radio.com. It's been a pleasure to share some travel time with you this week. We're your host, Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to connecting with you again next week, same time, same frequency. And until then, keep traveling on. Keep traveling on.